Welcome to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Sumnick. Our guest for this episode is Rosa Brooks. She is a senior fellow at the New America Foundation. She previously worked at the Pentagon as counselor to the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. And in 2011, she was awarded the Secretary of Defense Medal for Outstanding Public Service. Rosa has also served as a senior advisor at the U.S. Department of State. She is currently Associate Dean for Graduate Programs at the Georgetown University Law Center, where she is also a professor. Man, what I would give to be in your class. <laughs> Hi, Rosa. I'm not sure my students always feel the same way. But... <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Rosa. Thanks for having me on, Kelsey. So let's start off with what does a typical day at your job look like? What does it mean to be a dean? Well, my day job right now does not have much to do with foreign policy, except in a kind of indirect sense. My, my, my day job, which is currently being an associate dean at Georgetown Law, uh, I'm in charge of our graduate programs. And day to day, mostly I, I, I do boring things, <laughs> like I review the student handbook and make edits to it. And I troubleshoot when students have a, an issue, you know, a student doesn't show up for an exam and everybody thinks, uh-oh, what's happening and things like that. So it's not terribly foreign policy oriented most of the time. That said, it sort of indirectly draws on uh, my background in foreign policy and national security, both because we have a fantastic national security LLM program at Georgetown with about uh, 40 students in it. And we have a really fantastic group of faculty uh, who come out of the national security and diplomacy worlds who teach in that program. So, so some of the time I get to, I get to be part of that. Uh, and the other issue for us is that uh, about 300 or 350 of our graduate students come from overseas. They come from 70 different countries around the world. And that certainly makes it, gives an international flavor to everything I do today, day to day, um, uh, because we're constantly troubleshooting and dealing with issues that arise because we have people from so many different countries and cultures, and they're trying to figure out what's, what the impact of the Trump administration is going to be on their visas and so on and so forth. So, so even though in some ways the job is more removed uh, than certainly working at the Pentagon or the State Department from foreign policy, the, the issues do come up. As was mentioned, you've worked in so many diverse capacities in the national security field. So you are a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So I'm going to ask a little bit of a cliche question. How do you balance it all? Ah, <laughs> uh, I never feel like any of it's in balance. I, I think you can't balance. I, I actually don't like that metaphor because I, particularly when people talk about things like work-life balance, because the, the implication is that you, there is such a thing as, as balancing. And I, I think for most people, that's not what they find. They find that the, the scales are tipped at any given point in one or another direction. And they either struggle to compensate for that or they sort of accept it and, and make the best of it. Uh, and, and none of us can do all the things that we want to do. I mean, in, in every single day, there are things that I want to get done that I 
can't do. <laughs> um, you know, whether it's the trivial things like, oh gosh, I meant to answer that email and I never got to it, or or the more profound things like, gee, I meant to start that novel and I never got to it. Um, you know, that's every single day, all the time, for everybody, everywhere, always. And that's just the way it is, you know, that there is no moment when you achieve balance and you think, ah, you know, I've got 33% for work, 33% for family and 33% for going to the gym and reading good novels, you know, it, it sort of never happens. Uh, so I think it's, it's, it's always, um, it is more of a juggling act than a balancing act. You know, there's always a couple balls up in the air, there's a ball in your hand, and there's a ball that's kind of rolling down the hill while you look over your shoulder and go, oh, shit. Oops, I, sorry, I know this is a, a fam another a family podcast. Um, and and I, you know, I, I think that we, particularly women, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to never drop any balls and to have that fabled balance. And then we feel like we must be screwing up if we feel like things are not balanced. And we'd probably be a lot happier if we just sort of accept that, you know, they're, they're not balanced. They're never going to be balanced. Uh, you're always going to be juggling and that's okay. And there are always going to be some balls rolling down the hill behind you. And some of them will, you know, turn into meatballs and meatball trees and I'll be fine. And some of them, you know, you'll end up having to apologize to somebody the next day. And I'm so sorry. I, but, but that's okay that, that nobody gets 100% all the time, uh, least of all me, and nobody gets nobody gets perfect balance. Uh, you just have to sort of decide. I don't think it's a matter of balance. I think it's a matter of making sure that you carve out enough time for the things that matter to you most, whatever they are. And and I don't think that that will be the same at different moments in your life, and maybe not even the same week to week or day to day. Um, but you know, I have I have two kids. Uh, they're incredibly important to me. There are weeks that go by where I feel like I barely see them. Um, that's okay if it's a week. It's not okay if it's a month. Um, you know, there are personal writing projects I want to work on that sometimes I feel like I've put aside for weeks or months on end to focus on other things and the day-to-day -day stuff. And that's okay too, but I wouldn't want two years to go by and not get to them. You know, so, so I, I think just sort of being finding ways to protect the things that you're important while recognizing that there's, there's, there's no static moment of perfect balance that you achieve and, and sustain uh, is the trick to mental health, if nothing else. So here I am asking for your advice. And I neglected to say that a lot of your advice actually is already out there. You've been a impactful role model in my life, primarily through your presence at Foreign Policy Magazine, where I was once an editorial researcher. And some of my favorite articles that you've written include Want to Work in the White House? The Unofficial Guide to Getting a Job in the Obama Administration. Then there's... Oh, <laughs> now it's for the <laughs> historical archives. And then there's should you go to law school? The good, the bad, and the ugly about getting a JD. Forgot that I wrote that. Okay. I don't remember what I said, but <laughs> I think I was discouraging. Well, again, though, it's about finding the right fit, right? In our careers. And sometimes that means saying yes, just as much as, as saying no in some cases. That's why I loved your article. And most recently, you also shared the importance of working in the Trump administration and 11 other thoughts about how to handle 
life under the Donald. So uh, I think if, I've changed my mind about that, by the way. Wow. Now I say quit while you can. <laughs> Very good advice. <laughs> Actually, let me qualify that. If you're if you're in a career position, stay. We need we need the government to continue to function. But uh, three months ago, I was saying um, to potential Republican political appointees who were not crazy, uh, yes, go and try to make the the political side of this administration not crazy. And I think I've concluded that that is not in fact possible, and that the the very respectable and serious-minded and pretty nonpartisan people who've gone into this administration in political positions are just ending up having their own credibility damaged. Um, and so that category of people, I think it's, it's get out while you can. Wow. Okay. Thank you for this perspective, especially from the front lines in Washington, DC. So for young professionals, how can we help, you know, kind of keep walking everything forward or the general, you know, kind of human good forward, where do you think is most effective for us to look for jobs right now? So what should you do? I mean, it depends what stage of your career you're at and and where you are. Um, I do think that at the working level, um, the benefits of getting some government experience remain profound. Uh, you know, and that's a, a you know somebody who's say right out of a master's degree program. The the in the federal government, the presidential management fellowship is a fantastic way for people to get into the government. Do rotations around different agencies and different parts of each agency, uh, and the the experience is really really valuable. What, no matter what you want to do later. Um, I, another piece of advice that I heard from one of my former bosses and and doubted at first, but but came around to, uh, I remember Michelle Flournoy, who was my boss when she was Under Secretary of Defense uh, for Policy, saying to a group of young women uh, who would come in to talk to her, um, "Pick your boss, not your job. You know, choose what to do by the boss, not by the job." Um, you know, don't get fixated on the job description or the level or the subject matter. You want to work with good people. Um, and at the time, I thought, I don't really agree with that. You know, that doesn't make sense. But but partly as a result of spending a couple of years working for her uh, and also of having the opportunity or the, the that's not the right word. I mean, I mean, the opposite, the the misfortune of working for people who are unlike her in the bad ways. Um, I think she was right, uh, more right than I realized at the time. Um, the best, most exciting job description and title in the world, if you're working for somebody who doesn't care about you, doesn't value you, won't create opportunities for you, won't, won't give you feedback, won't give you pointers, uh, can be absolutely soul-crushingly miserable. Whereas if you're working for a great person, it really, it, the, the, you know, I mean, I don't mean don't pay any attention to the subject matter if it's, you know, go be a dental hygienist because you like the dentist if your dream is to work in diplomacy. But sort of within the general sphere of what you want to do, don't be too picky uh, because I, I do think that, you know, if you work for a good person who's more senior than you, that person will show you things and give you skills and be a mentor 
and open doors for you uh, in a way that in the long run is going to be you know, much more useful and valuable than working for the jerk uh, in the better sounding position. Thank you, Rosa. So you, sometimes it feels as if you have endless advice. I, I love it, but I don't know that we've ever heard your own story. Could you share a little bit about how you personally discovered that you wanted to go working in this field? You know, I, I never did decide it. And uh, <laughs> that gets to another piece of advice, which is don't overthink it, because uh, what you think you want to do right now may not turn out to be what you end up doing, either because you'll change your mind or because you'll just discover that things go in a different direction and you're perfectly happy. And you wake up one day and you think, huh, this is not where I thought I'd go, but this is pretty good. I like it. Because um, I, I started off, uh, when I was in law school, uh, I thought I would be a public defender or a prosecutor uh, or a legal aid attorney. Um, most of my coursework and my interests had to do with domestic social policy issues. Uh, and I had really very little knowledge or, or experience or interest in, in international affairs. Um, and what happened, and this is all about life being serendipity and nonlinear, uh, I had a boyfriend who I had met while I was studying in England, who was from South Africa. And I wanted to go spend some time in South Africa uh, and uh, didn't have enough money for the airfare. Uh, and I sort of looked around, I was a first year law student and I found that there were some summer fellowship programs offered by the law school uh, to fund summer human rights work. And I thought, well, South Africa has human rights issues. Uh, and I, you know, came up with a completely dubious little fellowship proposal and uh, applied and got some money to go to South Africa. And um, what ended up happening was the boyfriend fell by the wayside, but I got the international human rights bug and ended up changing course pretty dramatically. Um, uh, as a result of that summer, um, I met some people at Human Rights Watch who then subsequently asked me if I would want to be an intern in the Human Rights Watch office in New York, which I did. And that then led to some consulting opportunities with them, which led to a job offer from a former professor of mine, uh, Professor Harold Coe, uh, who was a professor of mine at Yale and said he was running the human rights program at Yale. And he said, do you want to, do you want to come and be my deputy director in the human rights program? Um, and I said, sure, and went and worked for him. And then Harold was nominated to be Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. Not something he was anticipating or I was anticipating. And, and he said, do you want to come to Washington and work for me at the State Department? Um, and I had never worked in Washington. I had never thought about working in Washington. I never thought about working for the government. Um, I saw myself at that point as a, as a human rights person. Um, but you know, I also thought, boy, this seems like too interesting an opportunity to turn down. And uh, so I said, sure. And I went off to D.C. and spent a year and a half at the State Department working for Harold. And that then in turn led me uh, towards more general foreign policy and national security. Um, but even, you know, within that, within that going in and out of academia and journalism, uh, there have been a lot of similar moments of serendipity. I ended up at the Pentagon, not because I had a life plan to go to the Pentagon or work on defense issues, but because when President Obama was elected in 2008, 
Uh, I was very eager to be part of the administration in some foreign policy related role, uh, but I didn't really care what. And Michelle Flournoy, who I who I knew a little bit, but not particularly well at that time, uh, you know, I sent her an email saying, um, I would love to work for this administration. Do you have any ideas uh, or suggestions? And she wrote back and said, why don't you come and work for me? And I thought, okay. <laughs> uh, so I think I think the the moral of that story to turn it back into advice, if there's any anything useful in it, uh, is that you can't over plan it and you do things that seem interesting and they will lead you to more things that seem interesting. And there's not much more you can do than that. And the people I think who, I think people who kind of say, well, in 10 years, I want to be here. And in 20 years, I want to be there often end up being disappointed either because they can't get there that way. It turns out that's not the right route or because they get there and they discover that they don't really like being there. Whereas the people who leave it open a little bit to, you know, have a kind of general sense of I'm interested in these issues or, um, but are open to kind of going through whatever doors happen to open and seeing where that takes them uh, often tend to, you know, whatever happens, wherever you are in 10 years, you'll have had 10 good years getting there. So inspirational because it sounds like, you always said yes and ready to just take on whatever might be next and kind of going for something, even if you didn't see the path forward. I think that's right. And and I certainly say no a lot, uh, particularly since I had kids, um, which, you know, 15 years ago now. Um, there are lots of things that I would wish I could say yes to and and have just had to say, uh, you know, boy, it would be really cool to go and, you know, live in outer Mongolia for three months or whatever it may be. But I just can't do that right now. Um, you know, you you that goes back to the non-existent balance, but know your priorities and protect them. Um, so you can't always say yes, but but being I think it's more being being open to somewhat nonlinear and unexpected opportunities. Um, uh, you know, whatever, wherever they are. And, uh, and I apologize, by the way, if you are hearing occasional thuds, uh, I am doing this podcast from home and my roof is being repaired and there are people clomping around on my roof right now. So every now and then I hear a resounding thud. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's coming through to your listeners or not, but, uh, disregard, there's no emergency. And Rosa, you are also author of the book, How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. For the young professional or the university student out there, could you tell us why you think we should pick up this book? Uh, why you should read my book? You should read my book because money from your purchase of my book will go directly into my children's college fund and you'll be doing a good deed for my children. Yes, um, we want to support Rosa. Everyone yes, out there, support absolutely. Rosa. Um, so buy multiple copies and give them to your friends as they make great, great gifts. Um, um, why you should read the book? Well, you know, I like to think it's it's a interesting and provocative account of the direction this country has been going in and the way we've thought about war and the role of the military and foreign policy more generally in a lot of ways. Um, but I'm going to let other people be the judge of whether that is true. Uh, I can tell you that it's got lots of 
good and weird stories about life uh, at the Pentagon. And I will highly recommend it. I loved reading your book and I agree. You're right. Everyone should pick it up and, and decide for themselves. It's a great, I think, foundation from which to then be building our own perspectives and understand how we want to move through the world and contribute to, to national security. Yeah. And one of the nice things about it was, uh, about writing it and the experience of writing it and the experience of running around uh, talking about it. And I've been doing a lot of that in the last six or eight months since the book came out um, uh, at the end of last summer um, has been that people, I I don't see it as a partisan or ideological book at all. um, Although I have very strong views on certain issues. Uh, I think in some ways my, my views sort of push in, in some different directions. Uh, and, and I've been really gratified that the readership has, has taken it that way as well. Uh, not as a, Oh, this is a book by a Democrat or, Oh, this is a book by, you know, somebody who's anti-military or pro-military or, you know, I, 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 I've gotten really good reactions. And I think people have, have to my very great happiness taken it as it was intended as, as an effort to, to talk honestly about a lot of really hard issues without shying away from what I think, but but working really hard to to challenge both uh, other people's perspectives and my own. Fantastic, and I think we just need more and more of that as you know, political and security and foreign policy debates are are happening. I am also a huge fan and follower of, of yours in the podcasting world and everyone has been closely following your own dialogue with Corey Shockey and David Rothkoff. Can you talk to us about where we can find more? Sure. Yeah. So David uh, and Corey and I started a little podcast together at foreign policy magazine called the ER. And I have to admit that um Although I was one of the uh, initiators of the idea, I, I never expected it to be as successful as it was. I, I was having a conversation with David and I said, David, we should really do, we should try to create like a little TV show on foreign policy because foreign policy does not have to be boring. And he said, well, that's a great idea, Rosie, except I don't think we can do a TV show. Why don't we start off with a podcast? And I thought, podcast? Who's going to listen to a podcast? You know, I, I don't listen to podcasts. What is a podcast? Nobody listens to podcasts. Um, but it turns out that David was right and I was wrong. Uh, we started this podcast with uh, uh, Corey and David and myself and um, started out doing it weekly. And, and David would host. And those of you who've listened to it know it's sort of a, a schmooze fest on, uh, you know, emerging foreign policy and national security issues of the week. Um, and uh, David's technique of uh, increasing our audience base was to routinely insult our listeners and tell them that they were terrible nerds. And weirdly enough, uh, there must be a lot of masochists out there because the uh, audience for the podcast steadily increased um, <laughs> over time. Yes, I am a proud <laughs> nerd. Um, I, I always found this sort of baffling, but um, um, I always held out for our listeners being very, very glamorous and insightful people and not nerdy at all. Um, but, but the podcast, uh, went on for, gosh, I guess it was about a year. I guess it was about a year. Um, but unfortunately, I think for, for all of us, including unfortunately for foreign policy, 
uh, David Rothkopf is moving on from the helm of Foreign Policy magazine and is no longer going to do podcasts with Foreign Policy. Um, foreign Policy, I should say, is going to continue to do the ER. The ER, uh, contrary to opinion, uh, did not stand for the emergency room. It stood for the editor's round table. And so the current editors of Foreign Policy uh, plan to continue it as an editorial roundtable discussion, even though David is is no longer at Foreign Policy. Uh, but Corey and I felt pretty strongly that that the heart and soul of our our podcast really was David and the the chemistry of that group of people. And so I'm very excited to say that David Rothkopf and Corey and I and David Sanger uh, from the New York Times, who ER listeners will know as a frequent ER guest, are going to start an independent podcast, which we are provisionally calling Deep State Radio, although it is conceivable that we will change that to DC Pirate Radio. We're not entirely sure. Um, and we are planning, if all goes well, to record our first episode of Deep State Radio next week. Uh, and we will be making it available on iTunes and all the usual podcast distribution channels. And I don't know the exact details of when we'll first have the episode and so forth. David is handling all of that, thank goodness. Uh, but if you follow me or David uh, on Twitter, uh, DJ Rothkopf uh, or at Brooks underscore Rosa, on Twitter, uh, we will be updating our Twitter followers on plans for the new Deep State Radio podcast. And we really hope that not only will listeners of the ER continue to listen to the ER, but we hope that they will also uh, begin to subscribe to Deep State Radio, where you can find the, the old podcast crew reunited. Well, thank you very much, Rosa, for joining us. Any closing words of advice? What do you wish you had known? What would you tell your 20-year-old self? <laughs> Oh, I would tell my 20-year-old self more or less what I've already said, which is don't worry quite so much about whether or not you have a plan. Uh, find things that you enjoy doing and hopefully that make you a little bit of money, at least so you can eat. We, we want people to eat. Um, but don't get fixated on titles. Don't get fixated on linear career paths. Don't get fixated on, oh, but, you know, if I want to do X, I must do Y and do Z. and you know, that, that I think if you, I know it sounds like a complete cliche, but, but do what you like uh, and you will, you will, you will do well. Thanks for listening to the Women in Diplomacy podcast. The theme song for this podcast is Misty Moses by the musicians Rodrigo y Gabriela. A very special thanks to Rubyworks Records in Dublin for allowing use of this song for educational purposes. For more information, check out theforeignpolicyproject.org. And thanks for listening.